Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Coming up on today's show, the parliamentary committee into the travel mess that we saw over the holidays did a bunch of work yesterday. What can we reasonably expect from these things? Fast food and fatty liver. A new connection has been found. How big of a deal is that? And an exciting new opportunity in Alberta. Well, two of them, actually. We're talking about The Last of Us, which premieres on HBO Max this weekend, shot in Alberta, and new helium projects. That's coming up. Uh, As we said, the House of Parliament's Transport Committee held their first hearings into the Christmas season travel chaos that we saw last month. Uh, They're going to be looking into the lengthy delays, the subsequent treatment, too. That's on their list. The treatment that thousands and thousands of air and rail passengers uh, went through. We know what happened. Trips delayed, trips canceled, baggage lost, shuffled back and forth from hotel to airport to airport to hotel. It was a mess. So officials from Air Canada, WestJet, Sunwing all appeared yesterday, all talked about A bunch of different things. Extraordinary weather, it was a perfect storm, a handful of things that came together to create all the chaos. So, these committees, what can we reasonably expect? What are they trying to do? We're going to find out. We're going to chat with Daniel Chai, who is a lawyer and lecturer in law and business at the University of Toronto and Toronto Metropolitan University. Daniel, thanks for joining us. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. So the the testimony that I heard yesterday, uh, it included some apologetic language from the airline officials uh, and a lot of explaining, too, which I'm not sure I hear much, though, in the way of how we're going to make sure this doesn't happen again. It's a lot of, well, this is what happened and it was beyond our control. What was your takeaway from what you heard yesterday? Yeah, I got a strong sense that there was a lot of finger pointing. Yeah. I also I also got the sense that this is really just a show trial for the uh Liberal government to kind of deflect attention from their poor planning and uh, mismanagement when it comes to uh, consumer um, and passenger rights. You know, we're supposed to have some of the strongest protections for passenger rights, but uh, clearly they didn't uh, really help. And uh, so this that that whole uh, process of the um, committee, I think, is really more for show uh, as opposed to anything else. In terms of that, Daniel, and I, I mean, a lot of it's going to be, hey, we're going to do something, and this is the first thing we're doing, and, and you're right, I don't have a lot of expectations that much will come of this. What is a reasonable expectation of the government in terms of this industry? It's it's different from all industries, but essentially it is a private industry at its heart. So what is our what should we expect of the government around travel in this country? Because it's been a real mess for over a year now. Well, the problem is in Canada, we have an oligopoly. We basically protect um, large conglomerates. We only have a couple airlines, national airlines, WestJet, Air Canada, and a few smaller regional players. So the reality is, it's not like anyone can just set up an airline. Uh, Canada, because of that lack of competition, lack of having foreign airlines, uh, unlike Europe, which has an open skies policy, so you can be a German airline operating in France, no problem, or in the UK. They don't have that here. And so uh, what you have as a situation is um, the government is tends to have a lot of ex 
airline executives and people who are, you know, were lawyers for airlines and so forth on the, uh, as part of the Transport Canada side and also as part of the CTA, Canadian Transportation Agency. And I think that coziness, the oligopoly, just reeks of really um, sort of a hypocrisy. You know, the government says it's trying to be um, proactive, trying to help uh, Canadians, uh, passengers. But the reality is, I think uh, we're seeing that uh, the relationship is a little too cozy. Um, they really need to have um, uh, our best interests at, in, at mind as opposed to uh, trying to look after uh, corporate interests. And I, and I think uh, that's one of the reasons why uh, the regulations and uh, passenger rights uh, provisions they put in uh, have actually proven to be extremely ineffective. Totally, yeah. They've, in fact, you know, they're supposed to dish out fines, uh, and the only fine they've issued is one a single fine to WestJet for $200. Yeah. Uh, it's just a joke. Yeah, we've had guests on the air say, you know what, if you're running an airline, instead of offering refunds and the rest of the stuff, just keep violating the rules because the penalties are almost non-existent. And even if they are, it's way cheaper to violate them than it is to do anything else. I mean, it, it makes good business sense to do what they're doing. And they are. Uh, they know that. Uh, the airlines know yeah. that. And they're taking advantage of uh, weak uh, regulations. I think it's also kind of interesting to see that uh, the minister for transport, he, uh, you know, he's, he, his, his, uh, they're actually planning the cuts. Um, over 80 workers, um, that take complaints and deal with, uh, passenger complaints. Uh, and they have a 33,000 complaint backlog, not including the, uh, the storm that just occurred and all the thousands of complaints that are going through the pipelines for that. Uh, and 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 of the thirty three thousand, those are actually complaints that are being appealed because uh, they haven't been properly adjudicated, or at least uh, uh, you know uh, the the uh, complainants have have not been satisfied with the answers being provided by the CTA. So it's a broken system; it's not yeah. working. And you know the guy, you know the minister is saying we're going to do something for you, but the reality is they're you know they're playing the cuts. So uh, it shows they, they didn't actually have a plan. This is all being made up, and it's for political optics to look good. I mean, so obviously it sounds like your expectations, like mine, are extremely low that, that this committee will actually amount to anything. Is it just an airing of grievances then, Daniel? Well, I think because this is a government that's uh, very based on optics and has a short-term thinking mentality, you know, if you look at how they've kind of managed and governed themselves over the last few years. Everything is done on sort of short-term political points. I think what you're going to see, because they are in a minority government and they want to look good, is before the next uh, winter storm comes, there will be some changes to make it look like they're doing more for mm -hmm. consumers. Um, and, you know, the minister has voiced um, that as one of his mandates is to strengthen passenger rights. Um on that same note, you know, they're, they've kind of forgotten about rail passengers as well. There's a lot of people that got stuck on the trains and, uh, you know, via, via rail, uh, same thing. Uh, basically, you've got a little monopoly there uh, in Canada. And, uh, you know, it's really a, 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 a question that uh, we are we really willing to tolerate these monopolies, oligopolies, uh, whether it's telecommunications, transport, um, it seems like in Canada, we're just too complacent.
Yeah, and we'll see where it goes. Uh, but like you say, it, it may not go anywhere. Uh, Daniel, thanks so much for your insight. As always, I appreciate it. All right, I'm doing this next interview in the interest of public health, but I'm doing it under protest, kind of. I, uh, I'm, I, I like fast food. I, I mean, I'm 51 now, so I, I don't do it like I used to. And when we get into this context of this interview, there's a couple of things that really made me go, what? Like when I was younger, um, multiple times a week, sometimes more than once a day, I'd be getting fast food. Not anymore. Now, not anymore. Today's Friday, so typically Friday after the show, that's my McDonald's day. One day a week, one trip a week. That's sort of been my routine for a while now. Um, and I, you know what? Listen, I know full well it's not a healthy choice. I mean, I think we all do, right? We we know that. But but, um, it looks like another negative health impact could be added to the list of reasons to avoid fast food, and I, I think. You know, it's just the list gets longer, right? Uh, this is a new study from um, Keck Medicine. It, it finds that eating fast food is associated with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Let's find out what that means. We're going to chat with Ani Kardashian, a hepatologist and the lead author of this study. Ani, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you being here. Thank you for having me. Okay. Linking fast food to fatty liver disease, right? That's basically what we're talking about? That's correct. That's what we found. We found that eating at least one-fifth of your total daily calories from fast food could increase the risk of you developing fatty liver. Okay, two things there. First of all, let's define it. What What is fatty liver disease? What are we talking about here? <clears throat> That's a great question. So fatty liver disease is a condition that affects the liver when increased amounts of fat build up in the liver. And it's a major, it's become a major public health problem. Over 30% of the U.S. population has fatty liver, and most people don't even know that they have it. And just the way, just like the way alcohol can cause damage to the liver over time, fat can do the same thing and can lead to complications of developing cirrhosis, liver failure, and liver cancer. I mean, it, like you say, a lot of people have it. Can, for most people, is it something that you, you live with and you're okay, or is at any level it can cause negative health impacts? That's a good question. When there's smaller amounts of fat in the liver, it's sort of less likely that it's going to okay. cause major problems. But in people who have other metabolic conditions like diabetes and obesity, we've, we see that the impacts on the liver are, are worse. Um, that's really where we see that the, the fat in the liver can cause inflammation and scarring and all these sort of negative consequences that, um, that I mentioned, including developing cirrhosis and liver cancer. Now, I was blown away. You said, and the, the study that you did found that 29% of the people you talked to uh, consume 20% or more of their daily calories from a fast food joint? I mean, I thought I was bad with my once-a-week trip, Ani. 20% of their calories coming through a, a drive through window? That's correct. So we used a national survey, actually, that's put out by the uh, CDC. And that is really reflective of the general population. It's really reflective of, of the makeup of the United States. And yeah, we found almost one third of people eat most, you know, 20% of their calories or at least 20% wow. of their calories from food. And in fact, we found over 50% um, had any fast food in the prior two days that they were surveyed. 
So people are eating a lot of fast food. Are they? I mean, which the next question I'd have to ask then is, what do you mean by fast food? Are you talking like what we would consider, you know, drive-throughs? Is that fast food? Or are you talking all restaurant food? I mean, that seems like a huge number. So what's fast food for your purposes? Absolutely. So fast food is defined as any drive-through restaurant or a restaurant without a wait staff. Um, so that really is sort of you know your McDonald's, yeah. your Taco Bell, um, you know ones where you're sort of having a sit down dinner are not included or sit down lunch are not included in that. Wow, that that that's mind blowing. Now I guess the question here and and um, if if you're talking about fatty liver disease and it's increased um, fat in the liver, if you're getting a fifth of your calories from a fast food window. Your liver's not the only thing that's fat, right? I mean, is, is that part of this? It's just just because Correct. you're consuming so much fat? Yeah, so that's, you know, we, we do know, and this is, you know, this is, uh, we know that fast food can, can lead to, as you mentioned earlier, it can lead to a lot of other medical problems and health problems like diabetes, obesity, cardiovascular disease. And this in fatty liver is just kind of like the, it's the liver version of that. Okay. It's where... You know, your liver is really accumulating and building up all this fat just the way, you know, someone, you know, starts developing insulin resistance with diabetes or they clog, you know, the arteries start clogging. It's the same concept, but in the liver. And that's really how I like to think about it. Um, it's just that all these sort of can really affect every organ and every system in the body eating, eating poorly. And, and now we're seeing the damage it can do to the liver. Boy, oh boy. Yeah, that's uh, that's. I mean, and I guess we, we, like, like I say, going in, we know it's not healthy. Uh, this is just yet another reason to maybe think twice about it. That's, uh, that's pretty shocking stuff. Absolutely. I, I hope this, you know, sheds some light on how, you know, how important it is to really try to, to eat, eat well. And I think we all strive to that and it can be very hard to, hard to do. But I hope this is more motivation for people yeah. to think twice or they go through the drive-through line. No kidding. Ani, uh, great information. Thanks so much for being here. I appreciate your time. So we're pretty sure, Sarah, that we're going to be able to see Last of Us on, on Sunday. We're pretty sure of that? Yeah, on Crave. On Crave. Okay, that's good to hear, because uh, I don't want to have to get another service. It's an HBO Max show called... Um, the Last of Us. It premieres this Sunday. Sarah, do you know anything about it? Like, it's about a video game. You play video games. I watch my boyfriend play video games. So let's with... clear that up. So what is this? From what I understand, it's like a zombie thing, isn't it? Like an apocalyptic world? I think so. Yeah. I think so. Um, like, the, the, the storyline of this show. It's a, it's not a movie, right, Sarah? It's a series. It's a TV series, it's I a think. TV yeah. series, yeah. And as far as I understand, it's okay. Here's what it's about: uh, the video game about a smuggler named Joel who is tasked with escorting a teenage girl named Ellie out of an oppressive quarantine zone and across post-apocalyptic America. Okay, so there's your plot. But uh, it was shot right here in Alberta, and there's all kinds of very cool pictures. Um, it was uh, the Alberta Legislature formed a backdrop for a while. Uh, some major streets uh, in both Calgary and in Edmonton were shut down over time. Now, the premiere took place earlier this week in Los Angeles, of course, and uh, the mayors of both Edmonton and Calgary were in attendance. This is Calgary Mayor Jody Gondek. 
Well, I had the incredible good fortune of being able to time a family vacation around the premiere of The Last of Us in L.A., and it is absolutely mind-blowing. It's an incredible production. I am so proud that it was filmed in Alberta. Um, we got recognition from uh, from the folks that were introducing people in the audience. They made a specific point of talking about the fact that the Canadian Consul General was there and that the mayors of Edmonton and Calgary were in attendance. There were 300 gamers in attendance as well. And the crowd absolutely went wild over the premiere. And uh, I think just this morning I saw it's got 100% on Rotten Tomatoes as well. So everyone should tune in on Sunday. This is a good homegrown production. Yeah, that was uh, Calgary Mayor Jody Gondek on uh, Global News Calgary this morning, 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. Okay, that works for me. I'll watch. Um, now, aside from how good or not the production ends up being in terms of the show, the fact of the matter is, and what we're going to talk about here is how important it is to this part of the world. We're starting to get a bit of a reputation, I hope, I think, as a pretty good place to make um, TVs and movies, but let's find out for sure. We are going to chat now with Damien Petty, who is the president of Calgary-based local 212 of IOTSI, uh, which is the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees. IATSI, I think, is actually how it's pronounced. Damien, thanks for joining us. Appreciate your time. Good morning, Jay. How are you? Good. How are you doing? You pretty excited? I'm very excited. This project, I mean, how, like I say, in terms of the burgeoning industry we have in this province, how big is this one, do you think? Because we've had others. Yeah, so this project is the largest we've seen in Alberta. There, um, Nobody can actually nail down what the budget is. And if I attempted to, I would probably get some letters from some lawyers <laughs> because um, there's often non-disclosure around budget items. So I'll talk about the crew to give you a sense. Okay. Um, so under our agreement, we had over 900 people, just our agreement. So that doesn't include the Teamsters or the Directors Guild of Canada or the performers or the stunts people or any of that. We had 900 people work just under a million hours on this project. Wow. Normally on a large show, we have 200 people working for a very large show. Um, so you can see the scale of it. And when we talk about the scale and the size of it, we also talk about how long it shot for. It shot for a year and it prepped for almost six months. So we're talking, uh, unprecedented, uh, period of time and an unprecedented number of jobs. You add to that the hundreds of businesses and the municipalities that were affected and the economic, uh, impact is massive just for this one project yeah no question about it and, and like you say you're talking that 900 is just your sector of the workforce and there were a bunch of other ones right i mean you're just how, how much of like in terms of if you broke it down into a percentage how many were iatsi workers do you think i i would think that the crafts so we represent 21 crafts on a film set it would range from special effects to makeup and hair, construction, paint, grips, electric, set deck, props. Uh, I'll probably miss a few, but mm. you get the idea. Yeah. We're about 70% maybe on, uh, of, okay. uh, of a crew. 60 to 70% of, of the overall crew would be represented by us on a typical production. 
I guess part of the question I have is I know we're getting a reputation, and, and like I say, we've had productions before, but due to the fact that this is the biggest and it lasted that long, were there any issues with with getting the the personnel? Like, can you provide that kind of crew with short notice? Um, we're getting better at it. Obviously, the the size of of this particular show was a challenge. We, we did everything we could to meet that challenge. We relied a little bit on, on crew from other provinces. But by and large, um, we were able, able to cultivate new members. So right. since it shot, we've added uh, almost 500 members to, to our organization. So I, I'll say we were stretched, but um, we've since grown. And there are other things happening that have better positioned us for the future, uh, including we're in the process of developing a training center. Um, we hope to break ground on that in the next month or so. Um, we also have a very robust training program. And other stakeholders are doing things like developing sound stages. And you've heard from, from the cities uh, and the film commissions that they do a lot to uh, make our jurisdiction film friendly. How important is it to sort of get a consistent, sustained level of activity? Like you say, you can ramp up and you can provide the people. You know, it's a, it's a push, it's a lift, it's hard to do. But if we had sort of steady activity, would that make a difference? That makes a huge difference. Um, the history of the industry in Alberta has been what I would refer to as a roller coaster yeah. ride. And, and so a lot of people say, well, you need steady, you, you need more crew supply in order to sustain the industry. I would say that is the wrong way around and you need steady work to grow the crew base. And so it's important for us to work with the other stakeholders to make sure that the, that, uh, the growth that we've seen continues. And even last year being a great year, it really did slow down in the last two quarters. So we, we always try to motivate the people who are looking for work and tell them uh, what's on the horizon. Luckily, there's a lot of shows on the horizon. We currently have two shows shooting. That's Fargo and Fraggle Rock. We have three large productions in prep, so we've got pre-production agreements with three, and then there's another five that are episodics that we think will be picked up for renewed seasons. So when you when you say what does next, what does this current year look like? It looks pretty good because here we are in early January, and we're talking about ten projects. That, which is exciting. That, that's fantastic. That's great to hear. Do, does the reputation spread? I mean, because, you know, how important is it that not necessarily that this, you know, this production does well, because that's not necessarily about the location, but just that people know it. I mean, and, and the more often this happens, I mean, how important is a reputation as a good location to do this kind of thing? It's, it's absolutely essential. And you're quite right. Um, because of the profile and the size of this particular production, we are on the radar. We're, we're not sort of a plan B or C location to go to. We're starting to see that Calgary's getting considered, not just Calgary, but Alberta as a province, being considered as a destination for, for large projects. And the profile of this particular production has uh, really, really enabled us to uh, get meetings with the top decision makers. We, you know, 
five years ago we would beg to get the meetings. Mm -hmm. Now those decision makers willingly want those meetings with us. So you can see that uh, um, it's easier to sell a jurisdiction that's succeeding than one that doesn't have much capacity. Yeah, plus when you can say things like, oh, you know, The Last of Us and Ghostbusters and The Revenant, I mean, those were all done in Alberta. I mean, just, oh, wow, I've heard of those productions, right? I mean, it's not like you're talking about, well, did you ever see this thing that happened? I mean, these are big, big, major productions. They they certainly are. And, Shay, we have the perfect storm in Alberta. Ever since our incentives became competitive, which was March 2021, um, we saw saw that happen, but we saw all these sound stages being built. Mm Mm-hmm. There's brand new ones about to open uh, Rocky Mountain sound stages in Calgary. They're about to bring online two new state-of-the-art sound stages and all the facilities and parking and all the things you need for for a very competitive sound stage. They're they're continuing to develop these things. So our capacity is expanding. Our tax credits are good. The exchange rate is helping. And our our, uh, training of crew and our crew growth is is very healthy. These things all add up to make a perfect storm, and so we're seeing that. We're seeing growth. Love to hear that. I love to hear that, Damon. Here's a question on the text line. I I don't know if you know the answer. It says, uh, I've always thought about doing pyrotechnics for films. Will that be part of the training center? Is there an opportunity? I mean, people are going to start looking into the possibility of working in this industry if it continues to grow. Is that kind of thing going to be at the training center? Yes, of course, but the pyrotechnics jobs are not the easiest one to get at entry level. So usually when when people join the industry, we kind of give them a pathway. It starts with set etiquette courses, which tell you what all the jobs are and who represents them. And then each department, that would be special effects for pyrotechnics, there are certain federal requirements that you would have to meet, and there are courses and there's entry level into that department. I don't want to promise that there are all these jobs for people. It is a process yeah. to um, to get to that level. But we also we also help people through our training programs um, get there. Sometimes it takes a while to get there because you need opportunities to be there, and those opportunities come uh, when there's high high amount of jobs available. Yeah, exactly. And now now the opportunities are starting to appear, which is the starting point, which is great to hear. Damien, thank you so much for your time. Uh, enjoy the premiere of The Last of Us this weekend. An interesting story that came to light this week. We often talk about diversification of Alberta's economy. I mean, we've been talking about it as long as I've been in the media in Alberta. And uh, it's a story that, um, you know, who knows where it's going to go next. We also talk about energy and all these sorts of things and our resources. Here's one, an announcement that there's going to be a massive foray into the helium industry in the province of Alberta. And I'm not joking when I say massive. We're talking about, like... 20,000 plus acres of land are going to be part of this. So um, it's called the Many Berries Helium Trend, uh, and it's big. So let's get the details on this. Uh, we're going to chat now with Brad Nickel, who is the chairman of Global Helium. Brad, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Yeah, no problem. Happy so, to be here. So let's get some details on this project. It's big. We know that. But uh, where is it? Just give us some of the, the physical specs here. Yeah, Many Berries is just uh, the name of the area down in southeastern Alberta, kind of around the Medicine Hat uh, area, I guess, or just south of Medicine Hat. 
and it's huge, right? I mean, 20,000 plus acres? Yeah, um, it's, a, it's a big swath of land, and, and uh, we hope to find what's underneath that land. So if you just measured it from surface, it's uh, 32 sections or just over 20,000 acres. Now, like you say, this is sort of, in a way, exploratory, right? I mean, that, that's the start of this project is just try and find out exactly what's there. Yeah, we do have the benefit of having thousands of wells drilled, uh, oil and gas wells drilled in southern Alberta over the years, but not many of them have been been drilled to the depth that we want to go to uh, to find the helium. So we do have some data points, and obviously we have one key data point that was the kind of the basis of our thesis that there is helium in this area. Um, that one data point is a well that exists and it's produced helium. Uh, it's got a good concentration. And so that's why we did some work to try and extrapolate from that well to see what might be around it. And that led us to to this acquisition of, of this acreage. So, so like we say, you're sort of, you're exploring to find out exactly what's there, but you have a pretty good indication that there is at least some supply there, right? Yeah, yeah, and that's what that key well yeah. does for us, is it tells us there's something there. Um, is, you know, when we talk about, uh, of course, Alberta is known as an oil and gas powerhouse and, and all the rest. Is helium typically located in areas that have oil and gas resources as well? Does that make sense? No, helium, uh, sorry, helium is typically located in areas that have might have uranium. Um, helium is, a, in a sense, a byproduct, or it's the it's the product of radioactive decay of uranium and thorium. Um, and those are elements that are essentially built or, or formed deep, deep down in the, in the Earth's crust. And so, the as the helium is produced from the radioactive decay, it migrates upwards. And it's trapped in areas just like oil and gas would be trapped. So it seems to be similar, but the actual source of helium is different than the source of oil and gas, although they do sometimes end up trapped in the same areas. Okay, gotcha. Makes sense. Now, if this supply pans out and it's as big as we're all hoping it is, um, then uh, there's production facilities, processing facilities. Like, this is just the start, right? Where could it go? Yeah, this this is, well, the, the helium in the industry in Alberta is certainly young and, uh, well, especially compared to oil and gas, which we're all used to. But helium, even globally, specifically exploring for helium has is it's really, really new. Uh, yeah. A lot of the helium that has been produced over the last few decades, most of it was discovered by accident, actually by oil and gas explorers. Um, helium is typically found in low percentages. In this case, the, the one key well that we're looking at is only 1.2% is helium. The rest of it, the vast majority of it, of it is nitrogen, which is what we breathe almost, well, uh, almost all of what we breathe every day. And so the... You know what we're pursuing is is a small percentage. Um, we hope to extract that using, I would say, relatively common methods that that are used actually in the oil and gas industry for extracting different gases and and uh, and uh, separating them all. So so yeah, that's uh, that's where we hope to go. And and as we expand the drilling program and discover more and more of the helium in this area, we'll have a better idea of exactly how much is down there, and and then we'll start producing. We actually hope to to start producing this year. When we talk about helium, I mean, I've heard of helium shortages before. What is the, what is the market situation for helium right now? Do we have a shortage? What's the demand like? Yeah, this 
so we we actually started investigating helium about seven years ago as okay. a as a team of people, um, and it it was a a supply driven story. It was always about the fact that the U.S. had for many years been the uh, I'd call them the swing producer. They had a, a really, really big storage of helium. They'd been storing it for decades. And then they decided it was, was no longer that important, and so they decided to empty the storage, and they were no longer going to fill it. So that storage facility essentially emptied a couple of years ago. And so the U.S. is now an importer of helium as opposed to being the global supplier of helium. But while they were, when, when they made the decision to shut down that storage facility and sell off the helium that was left in it, like any government, I guess they didn't have a good feel for what the market price might be, and they sold it at a, at a much, much lower price than what the market price would actually have supported. Hmm. And so what that did is it disincentivized any exploration. Nobody was going to invest the capital and take the risks to try and find helium if they weren't going to get much of a price for it because they knew they had to compete with the government selling off the storage facilities. So um, there has been no real exploration for helium um, up until about three, four, five years ago. It's so so that's what makes it so young and so new and so underexplored. So it's it's pretty exciting. We're actually almost on the cusp of a, of a creation of an entire industry here. Um, and it's all going to be helium-focused. Amazing. Awesome. What, what's helium used for? I mean, uh, we know about balloons, but obviously there's more than that to it. Yeah. Um, so apart from the supply story, the, the demand story has changed uh, re- very recently, and that's mostly driven by microprocessors and, and uh, chips. Um, we, we all read about those in the, in the news these days. <clears throat> but that's driven the, the majority of supply. So, so today I would say that the, the or sorry, the, the majority of demand, most of the demand today is either MRI machines. So helium is used to cool these superconductive magnets that, that take images of our knees and shoulders and, and, uh, you know, in the hospitals. That requires about 30% of the helium that is produced goes into the, call it the medical industry or primarily MRI machines. The other 30% or so, or, or so is in uh, semiconductor manufacturing, uh, microchips, and all that kind of stuff. They use it to um, to uh, it, it creates a very clean environment because helium is a very very tiny element, um, and uh, they use it for cooling as well. Uh, some of the big hard drive facilities, Google for example, is a big purchaser of helium so that that's where a lot of the growth in the industry has been but like i say this isn't so much about a a high growth story it's more about a low supply story and it's predicted that it's going to remain undersupplied for a very long time um what's the timeline here uh we start with the test wells and a bunch of people on the text line want to know just how deep you're planning to drill here uh, most of the the helium in either southern Alberta or or, or southern um, Saskatchewan, or, or there's a little bit in northern Montana. Most of those wells, I would say, range from you might find some helium as shallow as uh, fifteen, sixteen hundred meters, but the majority of the the helium is trapped below two thousand meters and, and wow. maybe even up to twenty five hundred meters deep. Holy cow! Okay, and uh, and like I said, uh, the plan is to get started this summer, correct? Yeah, we're we've already um, made our, our applications for drilling licenses, so we're going to start drilling as soon as we can get those. Uh, we expect that will be sometime in Q two, um, and then yeah, we'll be going like gangbusters. 
Awesome. Brad, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us. I appreciate all the insights, sir. No problem. Thank you. That is Brad Nickel. He is the chairman with Global Helium. I probably should have introed that entire segment <laughs> in a helium voice. It, it was a missed opportunity. Um, and uh, exciting times. I mean, we'll see where it goes. Uh, this listener, um, and this is what it's all about, right? This listener says, my ranch borders the ranch where most, if not all, of this exploration is taking place. I won't say the name for obvious reasons. However, it may be a significant economic driver for the area and for that ranch specifically. So um, that's what we're talking about, the diversification of the economy and um, other resources that we may be able to tap into. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.